I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3. If you're using the church Bible in the pew, it's page 1012. James chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 18 this morning. Let me read these verses. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It was about a month ago, I had a conversation with a few high school students, and one of them asked me a question that went something like this. What does it look like to proclaim the good news of Jesus to others around us? Some who may be making pronouncements about the, quote, evils of Christianity. How do I proclaim truth when they don't believe it? How would you answer? Well, this has been complicated in the weeks since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Christians have been mischaracterized and called all sorts of things arising from a misunderstanding of what we believe. But how are we to respond to share our faith? To put it in the language of our text this morning, what happens when mere earthly wisdom is confronted by the wisdom from above? You see, James is writing to Christians who are looking at the world as we are today and saying things are not quite right, that we are living in a broken and fallen world. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing to these early believers scattered across the Roman world and to us today to communicate that the righteousness that God desires does not begin or end with us, but must begin and continue as a result of a life-giving work of Christ that changes us and makes us new. The seeming conflict between the wisdom of this age or this world and the wisdom from above has presented itself in every age, albeit in different forms and different manifestations. But the passage before us helps us understand the inherent tension of being salt and light in a tasteless and dark world. Even though the first few verses paint a very bleak spiritual picture, the later verses give us words of hope. The good news is that this wisdom from above is available this morning for the asking, a life of peace and gentleness and mercy and so forth. The very things that so many people in this room and around the world today are longing for. These six verses that we'll look at in depth essentially ask this question. Will you live your life and interpret the world through the wisdom of our contemporary voices that are always shifting and changing? And my own self-focused view of reality? Or will you allow this wisdom from above to capture your heart, to capture your words, your thoughts, and your deeds on a daily basis? So the text before us breaks down into three uh, points this morning. There is, first of all, the wisdom from below. This is the reality of the ugliness of my natural human wisdom. How I naturally act and respond and think, this wisdom from below. 
Second, we'll look at the wisdom from above, which is the beauty of God's wisdom, which stands in contrast to the earthly wisdom. And finally, we'll look at the wisdom from a renewed heart and mind, and we'll talk about the grace of sanctification. So the wisdom from below, the wisdom from above, and the wisdom from a renewed heart and mind. So first of all, the wisdom that is from below, the reality of the ugliness of my natural wisdom. In verse 13, James comes right out and asks, who is wise? Who is wise and understanding among you? It's almost like he's taking a mid-letter check to see if anybody is paying attention. Is anybody paying attention? Are you with me? What is this wisdom thing? Have you been paying attention? In some ways, uh, unlike your English teachers who taught you to put your thesis statement early on so people know what you're talking about, it's almost like James has designed his letter in the shape of an hourglass, where it starts out with various thoughts, and he gives hints. He gives hints about wisdom, 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 and then he hits that middle part of the hourglass, and he gives us this passage in James three thirteen to 18 to say, this is what it all boils down to. And the last two chapters, four and five, are expanding out again in the bottom half of the hourglass to tell us, by the way, I, I want to reemphasize some of these things. This is what you're doing. This is how you're living in earthly wisdom as the children of God. But consider living as the wisdom from above. Look at the second half of verse 13 in James chapter 3. It says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The entire chapter of two and three have been about the proper use of our tongues. How it is not just enough that we say we believe in God to say these things, but to actually live it out, which is why he summarizes again the good conduct of the works of the meekness of wisdom. Now, meekness is an important word here because uh, it, it is this matter of having strength, but having controlled strength. And I know it's not very something we can really kind of adapt to today because not many of us have horses, but this idea that horses can be broken, they are powerful, they are strong, but yet they can be controlled. He actually uses an analogy earlier in this chapter to say even though the horses are so strong, we can control them by the the bridle and by the bit. So we can direct them wherever the rider wants to go. They are powerful, but it's controlled. This is what biblical wisdom, wisdom from above is that we're to show it with the meekness of wisdom. So who's wise? Who's been paying attention? And I love the honesty and straightforwardness of how he launches into verse 14. But, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. He's writing to Christians here and saying to them, don't do this, don't live in this way. And if we missed it, he repeats basically the same thing two verses later, so you know it's important. It says in verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So what are these words? Why does he use these words? Well, the word bitter that comes here, the bitter jealousy, is the same root that's used in chapter uh, 3, verse 11, where he says, Neither can a bitter water flow and salt water flow from the same stream, the same fountain as fresh and sweet water. Bitterness is the opposite of what is good and what is sweet and what is pleasing. The word jealousy here in this verse, in verses 13, uh, verses 14 and 16, 
is not necessarily a bad word. It can be also mean zeal. Not a common word today, but it's a positive sense. It sometimes means fiery indignation. In John chapter 2, verse 6, it is said of Jesus, zeal for my house will consume me. Again, it was Jesus seeing what was being done that was wrong and addressing it. But when you put it with bitter, this kind of zeal is not good. The next word he uses, selfish ambition. The idea here is self-interest, self-seeking, promoting one's self above all other interests. This is the wisdom of what seems natural to us, apart from God's sovereign work, making ourselves look good, putting ourselves forward, wanting others to like us at all costs, wanting to succeed no matter what. See, one of the challenges in our present time is that we are living in an age that is self-focused. We are selfish. We are living lives of autonomy. And this idea of autonomy is kind of pervasive around us. It's not just cars anymore. I read a story this week about online retail stores, how they're working to the point where when you hit submit as you sit comfortably in your house drinking coffee and ordering instead of going to the store, how inconvenient, you hit submit, it goes to an autonomous warehouse where a robot will automatically line up your items, put them into a cart or a drone, put them on an autonomous plane, this is, this is coming, and then the autonomous delivery truck will bring it to your house. We can even apply this view to the Christian religion. We want everything in our way and on our means. Just this week, a Hollywood movie star declared, and it's not the only one, quote, it's possible to not be a very religious person, but... Yet I, quote, believe in a very real God, wanting this idea of I want God to be on my terms, to make religion in my image. Now, it needs to be noted that while being passionate, being zealous, even having fiery indignation is good, they never produce good when they are bitter or self-focused, or when it is misguided zeal, placed in something other than the good news of the gospel. When James is writing this in the first century, there are many people around him who were called zealots. So taking this word zeal and making a noun out of it and saying they were zealots, they were attempting to overthrow the Roman government at all cost. One of the disciples that Jesus called was Simon the Zealot, Simon the Revolutionary, who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. We're not very much different today, are we? In case you missed it, we're living in a time when there seems to be a cause or a movement or indignation or outcries for just about everything. Now, there's so much passion and angst and indignation. This is not to diminish good causes. But what, when we as Christians need to constantly assess is this. Is this movement, is this cause flowing from the wisdom that is from above that God has set forth in his word? Or is it not? But it actually gets a little worse in verse 15. Not only is there these jealousies, these bitter jealousies and selfish ambitions, but James goes on to say that this kind of wisdom that is natural to us does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. See, James cuts right to the root of my autonomy and my self-regulated desires and my wisdom and shows where this bitter jealousy comes from. It is earthly, first of all. It is worldly. 
In our recent study of Revelation, we spent a lot of time looking at the natural operating system of the world, this world's system. Paul describes it in his letters as this present evil age that opposes God and his purposes. And yet the offer of the gospel goes out, that there is hope in the midst of this world that is putting its fist up in the face of God saying, we will not submit. God comes and says, here I am. In fact, we read this morning in our call to worship from John chapter 3, John three sixteen. Many people, even non-Christians know it. Perhaps it was the many years of the guy who was at the Buffalo Bills games who would hold up John 3.16 behind the goalposts, if you remember that, if you're of that age. I don't know what happened to that guy. I'd like to know. But he would hold up John 3.16 and say, God so loved the world. That's good. That's great. That's the offer. But look what John says in the next few verses, beginning in verse 19 of John chapter 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, James has been coming back to this theme again and again in the previous chapters that it's not enough to say that you believe in God merely, but to act it out. Otherwise, we are being controlled by the wisdom of this age. Next, he takes it one step further to say that this kind of wisdom from below is unspiritual. It is natural wisdom that is lacking the Holy Spirit's leading in one's life. In the words of Jude 1.19, he or she is devoid of the Spirit. And as such, they act according to their own passions and their own desires. What seems right in their own eyes is what they do. The Bible repeatedly uses the term the flesh, the the physical, the, the skin and bones to differentiate from the spiritual. From Romans 8, as our... As our alumni who recite this at Bible study every year can testify from Romans 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The third one that he gives here, not only is it unspiritual, earthly, but it's also demonic, the wisdom of this world. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that in the latter times, which began at the ascension of Jesus, some will depart from the faith and be devoted to the teaching of deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. You see, between Genesis 3 and Revelation 12 that encapsulates it again, We have this picture of the struggle of the dragon that is doing all that he can to thwart the purposes of God. You remember that scene in uh, Revelation 12 when we looked at that a few months ago? And it was this dragon tries to destroy the woman, tries to, as her son is born, the promised Messiah to devour him. But she is carried away and Satan is enraged and he does all that he can to thwart God's purposes. You see, Satan has always tried this. Worldly and uh, godless wisdom enslaves people to the wisdom to the God of this age. James has already alluded to this in chapter 2, verse 19, when he says that the demons believe 
that God is one, and they tremble because they know it's true, but they do not combine it with humility and repentance. A few verses above in chapter 3, verse 6, the unbridled tongue, when we give vent to our anger and express it through our words, is actually set on fire by hell. James uses these radical images yet again to show that the wisdom from below, without God's intervention, is boastful, self-focused, and follows the unrepentant path of the demons and Satan himself. See, this spiritual reality is captured elsewhere in Scripture. Consider these words from Isaiah chapter 5 about these two different types of wisdom. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, and here we have that word again, that bitter jealousy, the bitter water. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. How about this encapsulation from 1 John chapter 2, verse 15? Do not love the world, that worldly wisdom, or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, there's that word again, the natural, the unspiritual, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, which is what Satan did to be cast out of heaven, he would lift himself up to be proud, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what's the result of this type of wisdom? If we're honest with ourselves, we see this in our families, in our workplace, even in Christian organizations, and sometimes the church, where statements that are made to sound great and wonderful, where plans of action are drawn up, but they do not last because they are built on human wisdom, not humble, pure, and peaceable, godly wisdom. We also need to be honest and say we've seen this in our families, the ones who know us so well, that we often show them how we act according to earthly wisdom in what we say and how we say it. And he has just dealt with the tongue and that how no man or woman can fully master the tongue. We often let others around us feel the burning of our tongues that is set on fire by hell and is demonic. In our workplace, when things are done because they're expedient and make the most business sense, but are not fitting with the wisdom that is from above, whether it's impure actions or strife. So what's the result of this earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom? Well, it's in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. See, this word disorder, the the Greek word is used to express things such as anarchy, unrest, rioting, and confusion. This disorder leads not to good works done in humility and righteousness, but produces every vile practice. And as I thought about this, I couldn't help but think of the Irish poet William Butler Yeats, who vividly captures the thrust of earthly wisdom in one of the most quoted poems of the 20th century. Ironically enough, it's called The Second Coming. Written in 1919, after the conclusion of World War I and the evils that he saw and the world witnessed, 
He writes of the results in the language of James to kind of use this as a grid. The results of earthly from below natural wisdom. This is what he writes in his poem, just six lines. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. We see so many people today full of passionate intensity, but they don't have a basis for why they're doing it. The wisdom that comes down from above says there is a reason why we desire peace and gentleness and mercy and love. It is because of what God has done for us. You see, the wisdom of this world, if we're honest, is constantly changing, even over the past few decades. What was once right is now wrong. What is wrong is now right. It's constantly changing. And we're called as Christians by the world to say, you need to change. And we need to say, no, we will not change. We need to live by the wisdom from above. You see, secondly, there is a better way. There is a way to live by the wisdom that is from above. As bad and as hopeless as the wisdom of this present age can be, we need to see that far better than that, the wisdom from above is radiant, beautiful, and life-giving. You see, the solution for earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom is wisdom from above. Now, as we transition to this good news, I want to pause and I want to say from the outset that perhaps there are some here who do not like the fact that this sounds like an either-or scenario. Can't we have different degrees or different options in between this world from below and the, the wisdom from above? Well, it really is a choice, as the Bible presents it, between life and death. In the language of Proverbs 9, gives this great illustration that we can either choose the way of wisdom or we can choose the way of folly and death. The wisdom from above tells us that we need to die to our autonomy and our self-seeking jealousy and ambition so I can truly live by the Holy Spirit. Here are the choices. I can either come and die to myself and receive this heavenly wisdom from above and be alive in Christ or I can live an unspiritual uh, earthly life only to die spiritually. As Thomas exclaimed in John eleven sixteen, when they were going to see Lazarus, he said, let us go with Jesus that we may die with him too so that he could live. Look at verse 17. This is what James writes. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And I want to be honest here. What person on earth today does not want these very things? Can you find somebody, I'm sure you could find somebody who doesn't want peace, but by and large, people today want things to be made right. People want to receive mercy for them. I would contend that these words written by God centuries ago by the Holy Spirit speak so precisely to the cultural moment we find ourselves in right now. So let's look at these individually. First of all, James says that the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. 
This word is used elsewhere in scripture to denote ceremonial and ethical purity without blemish. James previously describes pure and undefiled religion as this, to visit the widows and orphans and to keep oneself unpolluted by the world's system. End of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. The good news of Jesus Christ is that as Christians, it's not that we are just called to be pure, but by the cleansing blood of Christ, we are pure. We demand purity in so much of our lives. After all, who wants contaminated food? Who wants dirty clothing? We, we want purity. How much more this purity of the wisdom that comes down from above And even though the surrounding culture may ask us to change what Christians believe to make it more acceptable, then it would cease to be the pure word of God, this life-giving message and hope for sinners like you and like me. So the purity of the word of God, the purity of the Christian life is because we have been given a new life. We have been given the pure righteousness of Christ Next, he talks about peaceable, and I'll come back to that in a moment. He then says that the wisdom from above is gentle and open to reason. I want to revisit the story of the earlier question from the student that asked me about the tension the student saw. Well, at its core, there was a wrestling with the contrast between the wisdom of this age and the wisdom from above. As we continue to live in a world that is often characterized by wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. I would say this is the really good news of the gospel right now, that we have a tremendous opportunity as Christians in today's society to show by our words and our actions what it looks like to be open to reason. We will continue to say this is the word of God. We will do this in gentleness but we also hold to the purity of the truth. The Apostle Paul put it this way, that we are to speak the truth in love. The purity of the gospel and open to reason allows us to speak the truth. And gentleness that James talks about says that we can do it in love. Not yelling, not shouting, not debating people in an ungodly way, but talking about the truth to say, this is the wisdom that comes from above. That's what we have to offer, to set forth the truth plainly in gentleness and love. See, there always has been and will continue to be these two wisdoms. But the wisdom from above will prevail as it is given by God for his people to live fruitful lives in the world that he creates and control. And it's what if people who are not Christians would be honest, they would say, we want these things as well but we don't want it through Christ. What an opportunity for us today. See, James says that the wisdom from above is then full of mercy and good fruits. Chapter 2, verse 13, he talks about mercy. He says that mercy, which is not receiving the punishment we deserve, mercy triumphs over judgment. And the basis for this is because Jesus took the judgment that we deserve. Jesus himself has shown us mercy. That when our fists were angry in the face of God, God saved us. 
He showed mercy on us. So therefore, we can show mercy to others. We have a reason for the mercy. James then talks about being impartial. He addressed this at length in chapter 2, verses 1 and following, when he commanded them to not show partiality, to judge others by external appearances, because that would be fleshly, physical, the wisdom from below, but to look at each other rather on the heart, to view each other with the wisdom that comes from above, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Finally, he talks about this idea of being sincere, being grounded, knowing what we say and saying what we mean and meaning what we say, which is the opposite of the double-minded person in chapter 1, verse 8, that we sincerely and firmly hold to the truths of Scripture, not being driven and tossed by the ever-changing winds of our contemporary culture, but being grounded in the Word of God. So if I can acknowledge this morning the ugliness of my natural wisdom, if I cling to these incredible things, these beautiful things of God's wisdom, then third, I can live in the wisdom of the renewed mind and the renewed heart. I can grow in the grace that God gives us in our sanctification. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. A harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. See, sanctification is a work of God's free grace where we as Christians are renewed after the image of God. That we more and more in our lives reflect the work of Christ and we more and more learn to say no to sin. That the things that as we grow in our life, we realize the things that charmed us, that attracted us, the things that the world offers just don't hold the same attraction. That's what sanctification is. Now that we've received this implanted word that is able to save our souls, we now have this harvest of the fruit of the Spirit. It is not my fruit, it is the Spirit working in me when I yield my life that the Spirit produces his fruit. And in fact, this agricultural analogy of a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. So why is, why is peace in such short supply? Why would this be part of James's list? Well, if you read these verses, if you read this book, you realize there, there's some non-peaceful things going on in this, these churches that he's writing to. I would say this too. Most people today want peace on their own terms. They want everybody to be reconciled to them, but don't see the need perhaps to reconcile to others. And yet if we're honest with ourselves, our co-workers, the people sitting next to us, our family members, many of us are longing for peace, for wholeness, for things to be set right. There are so many examples around us today when someone's fiery indignation and zeal for a good cause contradict and counteract the argument by their actions. So why seek peace? What if the other person has violated what is commanded in Scripture? I found a book that I read many years ago by Ken Sandy on The Peacemaker. gives some very practical advice. He gives some very helpful definitions. See where these can be applied in your life today. He uses three terms. Two terms, two alternatives to biblical peacemaking that I'll talk about in a minute. The first term that he introduced, and I love this term, it's called peace faking. 
Not peacemaking, but peace faking. And we all know what that is. That's when we just kind of want to ignore a situation. We just want to turn a blind eye and say, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with it. Maybe it'll go away. That's not peace. That's excusing somebody else's ungodly behavior and ignoring sin, turning a blind eye. The second term he uses is peace-breaking. Again, not peacemaking, but peace-breaking. Using conflict as a way to vent, using conflict as a club to be concerned about winning and shouting each other down. Well, what is peacemaking then? If those are the, the false things that we can fall into... Well, realize from Scripture that peacemaking and this this peace that James is talking about here is primarily, first of all, focused on God and his glory. You see, earthly peacemaking, the, the peacemaking from below is focused on myself and how I've been hurt and what has happened. But wisdom from above, peacemaking from above, focuses on restoration. It's about God's glory. It's not about what I don't like in someone, but about how can God receive the glory even in this struggle. Secondly, the peacemaking that James is seeking forces me to examine my own self, to get honest about what I may have contributed to this matter. Jesus commands us to remove the log in our own eye before removing the speck of dust from a brother or sister's eye. And, as much as depends on us, third, to be reconciled in this relationship. But Paul writes, I love how Paul puts this in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so he's not saying it'll be worked out every time. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It's not going to be a guarantee that everything will be worked out. But what we're called to do is put forth the truth plainly and let the Spirit work. And I would say this is hard. It's hard, but it's what so many of us are longing for. That real relationship with God, that real peace with God, and peace among men and women on whom God's favor favor rests through the work of Christ. So two closing thoughts. Um, One, if you are not a Christian, and a couple thoughts if you are a Christian. Well, first of all, if you are not a Christian, you might be asking, where does one begin to cultivate this harvest of peace? I want peace. Sounds good. Well, it must begin vertically by accepting the peace afforded by the death of Jesus Christ. Hear these words of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 and following. That's what Paul writes. Remember that you were once separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Jesus has conquered all the forces that spiritually stand against us. James will later say to humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. You see, peace begins by coming to God and believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is now your peace. To adapt James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18 in a prayer, perhaps you would like to pray this this morning if you've never prayed it before, it would go something like this. God in heaven, I admit that I have been living by my own self-guided wisdom, and it has left me unsatisfied. I am tired of living in my selfish ambition. I confess my vile practices. By the work of your son Jesus, please give me this wisdom from above. 
Make my heart pure, that I will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, receive the peace that only you can give. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you are a Christian, if at some point in life, your life you have prayed something like this in the past, these words give us incredible hope as we live in this earthly, unspiritual, and demonic world. That we submit ourselves to God so that the Holy Spirit can produce his fruit in us. This is that joy of sanctification. That we more and more are made in the image of Christ, more and more say no to the things of this world. Because we are not perfect, but we are growing in this wisdom from above as we strain forward to take hold of what Christ has already accomplished for us. See, we're never permitted to just remain where we are when we were called, but through this lifelong work of the Spirit, we always say no to sin and are renewed in the image of Christ. We are to be different. We are different, not because we're strange or odd or argumentative, but because the newness of life as we live out the wisdom from above and then the peace that passes understanding that this world system cannot comprehend. You see, this table before us, prominently displayed, is a tangible reminder of this truth. It doesn't make sense if we try to understand this physically or in a worldly way or intellectually, but it makes sense if we understand it spiritually. We do not come on our own goodness, by our own accomplishments, but only because we are desperate for the life-giving work of Jesus and we partake by faith and spiritually feed upon Christ as we are again strengthened and reminded of our union with him. In the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called the sons of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you who give wisdom to those who ask, fill us with the wisdom that can only come from above. Give give us a distaste for the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, so that we can serve you with undivided hearts for your glory alone. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.